looking to uh, looking to order the new uh, looking to order the meeting of the City of San Leandro Facilities and Transportation Committee meeting. Today is Wednesday, February the seventh, twenty twenty four. Would appreciate it if we could have the roll called. Council Member Acevedo. Present. Vice Mayor Simon. Present, and I'd like to make an announcement. Mayor Gonzalez. Present. At this point in time, we'll take 1B on our agenda announcements. Councilmember Simon, please. Yes, uh, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, I'd like to share my video. However, it says that you cannot start your video because the host has stopped it. So, but I'll continue while that's being worked on. I can't, uh, as a host, I can't do it. But I would like to request remote attendance via AB22, excuse me, AB2449 for emergency attendance. I have a family member with a serious medical condition that I need to monitor and help provide care for and wanted to request that be enacted. Thank you. Uh, I'll entertain a motion. Member Azevedo. I'll second it. Okay, so I will make the motion and you can second it. Is that what you're doing? You're seconding? Perfect. So I've made a motion from the chair and I've got a second from Councilmember Azevedo. Would we please take our vote? Councilmember Azevedo, can you say verbally, please? Verbally. Yes. Vice Mayor Simon? Yes. Mayor Gonzalez? Yes. Council Member Acevedo, yes. Council Member Simon, yes. Mayor Gonzalez, yes. Motion passes. Vice Mayor Simon can participate under emergency exception. Thank you. Okay, at this point in time, uh, would you please read our announcement? After each agenda item is presented, the mayor will ask for committee member comments and take public comment. If you'd like to speak in public comments, please fill out a speaker card and hand it to the administrative assistant before the item is heard. You will have two minutes for your comments. A countdown timer will appear for the convenience of the speaker and viewers. So at this point in time, we're moving to item number two on our agenda and we'll take public comments for items that are not on the agenda. So if people would like to address the committee. Again, for items not on our agenda. Do we have any speaker cards? No speaker cards. Okay, so at this point in time, I will close public comment and then we'll move on to our discussion items for today. So let's start with item 3A, which is a proposed clean water and flood mitigation replacement B and storm drain master plan discussion. I believe we have special projects uh, manager, director, person. Cynthia Battenberg uh, will be introducing this item via Zoom. And Cynthia, if you could give me your official uh, your official title. Uh, special projects. I won't say anything cute there. <laughs> Please proceed. I also can't turn on my video. Um, I think that's okay, but I, I need clarification. Am I supposed to share the presentation or will you be doing that on a selling? We will do that. Okay. 
So good evening, uh, Mayor and Council Members. As the Mayor mentioned, I'm Cynthia Battenberg, and I'm assisting the City with special projects, mainly in the Public Works Department. And today I'm here to um, with uh, Dan Schaff from Schaff and & Wheeler and Rick Simonson from HF&H to provide a update on the proposed clean water and flood mitigation fee. And the main focus of today's uh, presentation, however, is a presentation by Dan Schaff of the Storm Drain Master Plan, because that is the foundation for the proposed fee. So I'm gonna start um, today with uh, just providing you a little bit of background. I'll turn it over to Dan, who will review the Storm Drain Master Plan. And then Rick is going to kind of talk about financial re needs, the proposed rates, the Prop 218 process, and the timeline. So background-wise, 30 years ago in 1993, the city adopted a stormwater fee, and this was to address- I'm gonna ask you to hold on a second. Okay. So I just went over the second slide, which is the outline for today. And I was just, right, okay. And I'm gonna now talk about the background. Um, yeah, so, um, so this fee that was established in 1993 um, generated uh, $1,073,000. And that is what it has uh, generated every year since 1993. Unfortunately, our costs for um, maintaining the storm drain system, which includes um, increased uh, requirements for compliance with clean water uh, regulations and um, an increasing need to repair our capital and infrastructure, they have not only uh, increased due to inflation, but um, they have just simply increased. So in April of last year, the council received an overview of the stormwater fund and system and directed staff to proceed with this Prop 218 revenue measure. And then in May, the council approved a $200,000 consulting agreement with HF&H to implement that Prop 218 process. And in September, the council approved $125,000 for consulting work to develop the storm drain master plan and, and manage the, the revenue process. So today we're here uh, really presenting the storm drain master plan. The master plan, um, can you switch to the next slide, please? Yeah, the, ma the master plan is uh, the, uh, first, the first document where the city's uh, storm drain system has been mapped to see um, the size of our pipes, uh, the ownership, um, and it's gone through hydraulic studies to evaluate the risks. Uh, there was also consideration of climate adaptability. And then the master plan recommends um, and prioritizes capital projects that are needed to maintain the system and to meet all of our requirements. So the master plan also identifies um, the needs of the system. And it, like I said, this is the foundation for the stormwater fee. So it looks at what our current needs and future needs are. And with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Dan 
chap who's there with you who will uh, review the uh, findings of the master plan. There we go. Can you hear me now? Uh, hello, I'm Dan Schaff with Schaff and Wheeler. We did the uh, master plan for your city and I'm here to present our results and kind of the next phases of this. Uh, so next slide. So a little bit of what we did, we uh, I wanted to go over the project goals, how, how we analyze things, what those results were and what our recommendations are. So the goals. So a survey master plan is really exactly what it sounds like. It's a master plan. It's a holistic look at the city's drainage infrastructure. And we make recommendations on increasing capacity to reduce flooding and drainage hazards within the city. Uh, we look at the maintenance and the operations of the existing system and how those can be improved. And then the third component now is clean water. So what does the city need? need to do to be in compliance with the MPDS permit. So the next slide. So the methods. Uh, actually, San, San Leandro is quite complex. Um, I've done about 30 of these in the Bay Area. And what we're looking at on the right is a picture of the infrastructure. And you can see that a lot of it is owned by the county, uh, the state, Caltrans, and private uh, owners, so, which makes things very complex. Um, and so I want to be really clear, our analysis looked at all this infrastructure, but we only made recommendations for improvements where the city owns the infrastructure. So it's very difficult for us to ask the county for improvements, but down the road, that's, that may come into play as uh, cost sharing projects may help things. Um, so we use a 10-year level of service. So you hear 100-year storm, 10-year storm. We use the 10-year storm the size, the infrastructure for storm drain pipes. And that is typical of almost every city in uh, the Bay Area. That is really the design standard for pipes. Uh, we use the Alameda County Manual, so very standardized procedures, well, well used, well vetted. Uh, and we also, you know, climate adaptation is a hot topic right now, right now. So we did look at both sea level rise and precipitation changes in, in the future. Uh, on the operation side, we work very closely with the city operation staff to see what's being done now, where the shortcomings are, what needs to be done, what it's going to cost, you know, both in uh, labor hours and equipment that's required to do that. Next slide. So on the capacity side, uh, we came up with about $80 million in uh, improvements, pipes that need to be upsized. Uh, and this is quite typical of most cities that front the bay within the Bay Area, both sides of the bay. Um, it, it maybe it looks a little scary, but uh, you know, we also prioritize these projects and rank them. So they're not all need to be done today, uh, you know, as funding allows. So we've prioritized them with about $8 million in the what we're calling the highest priority projects. So these are the projects that we would say need to be done because these are areas that have and regularly experienced drainage or flooding issues. Um, and then with, on top of these improvements, then we added climate change. So on the lower part of the city, sea level rise, and, and throughout the city, uh, precipitation change. So these highest priority projects, there's really four of them. And the first is trash capture. So 
mandated by the state through the MPDS permit is capturing trash in urban areas. And so that, that is about $2.8 million of, these are either nets, screens, boxes, various devices uh, that need to be installed. Uh, there is a cost sharing component because Caltrans will contribute to uh, capital projects that drain, that, you know, drain to there uh, right away. Uh, then there's three others, and notably uh, the lower part near Neptune Drive uh, area of the city and the sort of the uh, northwest corner, uh, there's quite a bit of issue uh, with drainage and tides. And so there's two uh, key projects there. They are um, along uh, Williams and Aurora, and those two projects will help alleviate uh, flooding long-term, very long-term as the sea level rises. Uh, there's going to be a lot more concerns there. And this report does not address the actual bay inundation on uh, that portion of the city. So, next, a list of a lot of the various high priority projects. So these, as funding allows, these should be reprioritized. They should also be uh, incorporated with maybe county projects. Maybe the county is looking at projects in these areas or other Caltrans, other people. Quite a few projects out there that need, could be funded. Next, on the operations side, uh, it's estimated about one point nine million dollars annually is needed to operate uh, the system. I think Cynthia mentioned earlier about one point one million was uh, being generated currently. So you can see immediately the the shortcoming that um, the biggest component of that really is the street sweeping. That that is a lot. Uh, of effort and money for street sweeping, uh, then maintaining the system, cleaning inlets, catch basins. When we add trash capture, all these trash capture devices, they're going to need to be maintained. So maintenance just keeps going up uh, and up. Then your regular pipe cleaning, you know, removing sediment in areas that are known as things are inspected. Uh, the MPDS permit itself requires various reporting and activities that need to be done. And lastly, uh, there is a requirement to start for the city to start implementing green infrastructure, infrastructure, so things like green streets and bioretention and things like that. Um, so those all play into that uh, $1.86 million. So where do we go from here? Uh, so Rick will talk about funding. So once there's funding, it kind of comes back to the engineering side. Uh, we, we look at alternatives to these projects. What is in the master plan is very utilitarian. Are there alternatives? Are there cost-sharing projects? Something we could do with Caltrans, green infrastructure, these type of projects that could, um, you know, either reduce costs or provide greater benefit than just sticking a pipe in the ground. Um, so one thing the city can do right now, and um, <laughs> I think most of us are doing as citizens, is paying attention to What's going on right now? We're having storms. Where is it flooding? Are these areas that keep coming back? Um, you know, those type of things. And the more that gets reported, the better, because to us, that's data. That's going to change those priorities of those high priority, high priority projects. So uh, something that can easily be done and started right away. But then when funding is available, we design these projects and hopefully they get constructed and improve uh, conditions in San Leandro. So that's my part. Goes on to Rick from there. There we go. 
Good afternoon. I'm Rick Simonson, Senior Vice President with HFNH, and I'll just build off what Dan has already presented as an overview of the needs of the system as we translate that into the proposed fees that we'll be bringing forward uh, to the, the full council later uh, in the next month or so. So just to build off what's already been stated, uh, the current fees generate about 1.1 million. Do you hold on just a second in your presentation? Yes, absolutely. We're just trying to turn up your volume a little locally and then right where you're located, if you could just get closer to your mic. Right on my mic, is that better? That's better. Wonderful, I'll make sure to speak up. So just building on what Dan said and Cynthia mentioned that your current fee brings in about 1.1 million. In our figure here for the stormwater fund expenditures, you'll see that the current budget is about 1.2 million. Understanding that there isn't all that much funding available for projects. Uh, and the second column of numbers of moving forward, we see a total need base on the study uh, from Schaff and Wheeler of about 4.8 million per year. And it's broken down in a little more detail than what Dan provided. He did mention the street cleaning is the most uh, significant cost of about $780,000 need. And I'll just point your attention to how we've handled the capital projects that have been outlined uh, by the work of Schaff and Wheeler, understanding that there's a big need for improvements, but they can't be done all in one year. We've approached funding these uh, capital projects in different ways. Uh, the first line regarding the capital projects you'll see is a very high priority projects. And with discussions with staff, the first assumption is that will be debt financed. Uh, this mostly includes the NPDES requirements of trash capture devices. Uh, so this reflects the debt service to be paid on uh, those very high priority projects of about 519,000 per year. The next category of high priority projects we've assumed would be done at a pay as you go basis, which is cash funded, not debt financed. But again, understanding there may not be the manpower or uh, the revenues to uh, do these projects all in one year, we've assumed that this 22.4 million in cost for high priority projects would be completed over a 30 year period. So we would need on a pay-as-you-go basis 746,000 per year. And the next level of projects for medium low priority using the same uh, methodology for uh, pay-as-you-go process, about 47 million over the 30 year period would require revenues annually of 1.5 million. In the last row of numbers there, you'll notice general fund loan repayment uh, because the fee that was set in the 90s has not increased, but costs have, uh, the enterprise has been operating at a shortfall. General fund monies have uh, made up the difference. So we have a way of paying back the general fund for the use of those monies spread over 30 years, and that has amounted to about $2.5 So that explains a need column. We're not asking for that full $4.8 million per year, just looking at the impact on rates. So we're proposing to generate approximately 3.2 million. So about a tripling of the current 
revenues. Next slide, please. What does that mean for the rates and the charges for the properties within the city? And we are still uh, working on the analysis as uh, we're working through the city facilities and parks and schools have not been charged in the past and they do need uh, to be charged for the runoff that is occurring on their property into the stormwater system. So we're still developing those charges, but this gives you a snapshot of where things are leading to fund about 3.2 million annually. The first column of numbers is the current stormwater fee for single family, regardless of size, 26.33 per parcel per year. Multifamily, condos, commercial and industrial charge on a per acre basis. We are proposing just a slight change to the rate structure when it comes to single family, knowing that there's a wide variety of parcel sizes within the city which has different pervious services that contribute to runoff. So uh, best practices uh, throughout the Bay Area is to look at various sizes of parcels. So we're bifurcating the single family charge into three different, either a medium sized parcel, which is a majority of the parcels in the city at about 79%. And those smaller parcels which are about 6% of your parcels would be 38.46 per year. And then large would be something greater than the medium of 67.72. We have the corresponding monthly costs on the right-hand side. We are seeing a larger increase to the multifamily and commercial. Uh, this is just a realignment of the runoff coefficient factors. Not entirely sure how they were calculated in the 90s, but things have changed and properties have changed. So. We are seeing a realignment where multifamily and commercial are seeing a larger increase to current than single family. Again, this is still under review. Next slide. Just the process once the proposed rates uh, have been calculated, there's a two step process to get these approved with Proposition 218. The first step is to mail a public notice to all property owners. And you have 45 days, no earlier, would hold a public hearing. And during this 45-day period, property owners are welcome to file a protest, which would be a written protest mailed to the city. And if at the end of that 45-day period at the public hearing, if there's not a majority protest, meaning 50% plus one of your parcels do not protest, you can proceed on to step two. Step two, is what we call a, a ballot uh, component where an actual ballot is mailed to those property owners and each parcel receives a ballot and each parcel is counted as one. On that ballot, they'll check yes or no, they approve the fee. Following another 45 day period, you can have the public hearing and count those votes. So this is a little bit different than step one where it's only soliciting protests. This is an actual vote of yes or no. And in order to adopt the new fees, the yes votes need to be at least 50% plus one of total votes received, not total properties as step one is concerned. It is for those votes received. So next slide. So laying out how we get there to get the proposed rates onto the property tax rolls. 
Uh, March 4th, we intend to have a presentation to the full council with a report showing the methodology and calculations of the rates. At the April 1st meeting, we come back to council to consider issuing that first Prop 218 notice that would be mailed out and then waiting for a 45 day period coming back in May, at least 45 days, May 20th, hold that public hearing as long again, if there's not majority protests can mail the actual ballots that will go out and be counted at the July 15th council meeting. And at that time, if there is 50% plus one yes votes compared to total votes, the fee could be adopted. If less than 50%, it could not proceed. And this timeline um, assumes that uh, we can submit the new fees to the county by their August 10th deadline so that they would be included as part of the 24-25 tax rolls. So we wanted to provide you the, the next steps so that you can see the importance of how the storm drain master plan informs this stormwater fee project. Um, but today we have Dan Schaff here and he's really here to answer questions about the uh, report. You'll have received a, a far more detailed report at the March 4th council meeting where we can focus on the fee as opposed to the storm um, drain master plan. And with that, that completes our report. Thank you. Thank you for the detailed presentation. It's obviously exciting on our side. We talked about this at our priority session back in March of last year. And we said, oh my goodness, how is it that we haven't addressed this fee increase in 30 years? And so to see that we've been very purposeful um, you know, congratulations to, to all of you for your hard work. I think what I'd like to do now is um, take clarifying questions. And I'm going to start with either of you. Would you like to start, Councilmember? Yes, no. Uh, I'll start here and then I'll go to you, Councilmember Simon. Uh, and obviously, there's no requirement to ask questions, but I'm assuming that you guys have questions. Thank you all for your presentation. It was very informative. Okay, I got a few questions. Starting on slide eight, we have the drawing on there where on the storm drain pipe, the different owners of it. On the, bo on the bottom down there where it's green, it's private. Is that Oral Loma that owns that area? No, that's Heron Bay. That's, that's, that's considered Heron Bay right there? Okay. So they own all theirs. Okay. So it's it's probably about 50 or 60% the city owns, it looks like. And about AFs, the Alameda County Fire Department owns about 30 or 40. What? I'm just guessing. Okay. Um, it's not the fire department. It's the Alameda County Flood Control District. And I think actually we own more than half. Is that not true, Dan? Uh, I don't have the... Uh, actual numbers available, but uh, graphically, I think you could kind of figure out what what the distribution is. But it, in general, Alameda County Flood Control owns the larger systems, the, the channels, the large trunk lines, and the city feeds into those in a lot of places. So, okay, typically how, but they are in many places reliant on each other. And on slide 10, the trash capture installation, 
that's mandated by June 2025. What for 2.749 million? What um what what's changing on there? What what upgrades are we getting for that? So it is installation of a lar lot of large trash capture devices. So like netting and various devices that need to be installed to ca physically capture uh, trash. And it's trash up as small as basically five millimeters. So like a cigarette, but it's, it captures a lot. It's, they're very labor intensive in cleaning those. So either put at inlets as like a basket to catch them, or what we like is uh, at key locations, like maybe right before it discharges to a channel. It's, so you're only putting in one device and reducing operations time to, to clean those out. How is that going to work where we own part of it and then it's private or the blood control is part of it? So part of it, will we'll install it in our area, but how will that work where it goes to theirs? Yeah, and so we are doing... We are separately a separate contract and not me. Uh, my firm is working on the trash capture design and feasibility study. And uh, my understanding is that 100% of the city uh, needs to be captured. So even though it might drain to an Alameda County type, it's, the, it's basically the land uses that's generating the trash. So that's what needs to... So our recommendations are all within the city right away and on city owned and operated infrastructure. And I, maybe I could add that uh, we have had some meetings with some of the larger commercial and industrial users, and they've indicated that they have their own trash capture devices and clean water regulations that they must comply with as well. All right, I have one final question on slide 12. It mentioned the detention basin dredging. What, what exactly is that dredging for that? That's on slide 12. There it is. It says every 10 years. Uh, so yeah, just on any um, detention type facility or basin that e exists or is proposed, uh, that those need to be, uh, they, they fill up with a lot of sediment, a lot of fines. And over time, they lose their capacity to hold water. So about every 10 years, it's nice to go in and scrape them and remove those. That's, you know, it, it varies, but 10 years is a good sort of average for maintenance on those. Yeah, because I'm real interested in dredging because our marina needs to be dredged. So. Right. Yeah, that would be more marine sediment. This is just, yeah, but closer you are to the bay, that sedimentation is much worse. You're right. That's all my questions. Thank you. Yeah. Councilmember or Vice Mayor Simon, did you have some questions? Yes, please. So the first question is on slide number 15. Just some clarification here. And SM, SFM is single family, single family. I see in the parentheses. What is what is SFH? I think there's a typo. It should be SFH. Oh, single family home. Yeah. Okay, so there is no SF SFM. Correct. Okay, got it. Everything is SFH. 
Okay. And let's see. So medium parcels, small parcel, large parcels. Can you describe approximately how many acres or square feet are you talking when you say medium, small, large? Yes, I can address that. Just need to bring up the spreadsheet real quick. If you'd like to continue with any other questions, I'll pull it right up. Okay, I'll ask I'll ask some more questions while you're we're pulling that up. Uh, so stepping back in the beginning, as far as the fee increase, as the mayor mentioned, it's been 30 years since there's a fee increase, which seems you know, way too long. What's the plan to regularly increase free fees to keep up with inflation and other factors? Well, the fee that's being proposed will include a uh, CPI adjustment with a maximum of 3% per year. That's what we're proposing. 3% per year. And maximum. It would be the CPI with a maximum of 3%. Okay. And that, that'll be in the 218 notice for the public to, to see? Yes. Yes. Okay. So those numbers you're talking, the 4.8 million, is that factoring in that CPI, CPI increase per year? 4.8 million per year was the need and 4.1 was the proposed? Uh, 3.2 is the proposed. 4.8 is the need. Uh, but given that we're only generating 1.1 now, the recommendation is to uh, establish fees that would generate 3.2. So it would take care of our high priority and very high priority projects, but not address the medium or low priority. Okay, but that CPI, is that 3.186, assuming the CPI is being, I mean, is that number 3.186 going up every year by the CPI? Yeah, so those are, the numbers you see are reflected in current dollars. And so, yes, costs will increase over time and the fee will increase over time to keep up with that inflation. Okay. I'm sorry, I just want to clarify, make sure we're on the same page. So that is, it will increase by CPI unless CPI is greater than 3%. So it may not keep up with CPI over, let's say, a 10-year period. That could occur. That is correct. Okay. I just want to make sure that Councilmember Simon and I and Councilmember Esfandiari, we're all on the same page about exactly what's happening. So thank you for the clarification. Okay, and if we're not keeping up, the council can come back and readjust at any time. Is there any limitation on when we can redo the 218 notice? There is no limitation. Okay. You can revisit it anytime. Okay, just curious, why, why did we choose 3% rather than just, I mean, maximum of 3% rather than just CPI? Maybe I can and tackle this. I think this was uh, discussions with staff just to give some comfort to ratepayers that there is some amount of predictability. That it could actually go with CPI if that's the desire of uh, the council. 
Okay, I'll save that one for the comment period. Uh, did you have that spreadsheet available? Yes. So I'll start with the small parcels. Uh, those are parcels that are less than 3,200 square feet. Medium is 3,200 to 7,200 square feet and large or 7,200 and greater. Okay, thank you. So, um, so single family, and when you say new six percent, new fifteen percent, could you describe what that, what that means? Are those all categories or single family homes? So the six percent are the number of single family parcels that are in that category. Got it. Accordingly. Okay. Uh, let's see. So they're the trash capture devices, five millimeter opening, I heard. Are there any low maintenance type of screens or have you looked at minimizing the amount of maintenance that is necessary? So, um, yes, that's exactly what we've been doing. And we have noted that uh, larger devices have less long-term maintenance costs. However, many uh, cities uh, don't go after a fee and they just install devices at the inlets, which is very cheap, you know, $500 per inlet, um, but constant maintenance. So uh, long-term, we see those as uh, more costly. So we're fans of the large devices, less long-term cost to the city. But I, I think, I don't think I have the numbers exact, but we have about 825 small devices currently installed, and we need to install approximately 75 more small devices and six large devices. So there's over 900 trash capture devices that need to be maintained once um, everything's installed. Okay, and so when you install the large, are those totally separate from the small? So they're not like double counting or double cleaning? Correct. Um, and in fact, the way the calculations work, you only get credit for one of the devices. So uh, we are putting the large devices on areas that do not have significant number of small devices. Okay. And what what does a large device look like? Or wh where where is it installed and what does it look like? Yeah, so good question. Uh, there's a lot of technology uh, and emergent technology in this because everyone has to do it. Um, so a lot of them are um, like large screens that are uh, diverted. So the stormwater gets diverted and it goes through a, basically a large basket. And that basket fills up with uh, leaves and other organics and trash. And then any high flows bypass that. Uh, there's netting devices, uh, which we're seeing more. So like at the outfall to a creek, it's a large net. And so all the water goes through a net. And when the net fills up, a boom just uh, detaches it, puts a new net on. Sort of like a, your kitchen garbage bag in a way. Like, um, and so uh, it, it, it depends on the area. It depends on uh, the right of way and a lot of other components. Uh, so, yeah. Okay. And when a bypass happens, are there 
fines associated with that if we're washing trash to the bay during a high flow situation? No, the the flows that are required for trash capture are the low, uh, uh, the high frequency storms, so the, the lower flow rate storms. So uh, bigger storms like the 10 year storm, which I'm designing for, uh, don't need to go through those devices. So there is a set uh, water quality flow, and we make sure 100% of that goes through the device. So the devices are designed so that high flows do bypass them and don't cause flooding. Got it. Okay. Okay. Uh, I have more questions, Mayor. Do you want Do you want me to hold off since I've been taking a little time here, or keep going? Why don't I ask a few questions, and they might be cap reflected in your questions. Okay. Then I'll come back to you. Um, so to, to try to understand the scope of the work, all inlets. Or the the what's the storm drain called? Is it an inlet uh, or a catch basin? Yeah, catch basin. Each catch basin in the city of San Leandro has been mapped to a storm drain. Correct. We have that map. That's that's our work product that we own. Okay. Yes. That map, in that mapping, we determined that 50, 60% of it's, uh, it is city-owned pipe that the basins flow into, right. but... There's a non-trivial portion of our piping that's owned by Alameda County Flood Control, by the state of California, privately, and who knows what else? Special jurisdiction, maybe. I don't know. Is that a fair summary? That is. Okay. When we did our assessment work, state of affairs, did we do that on a sample basis or did we run cameras through these pipes? How, how did we assess the state of affairs? Right, so our uh, our master plan did not do what we call a condition assessment, uh, meaning that you would send uh, CCTV like robots through um, the system and actually look at um, areas that are, you know, maybe full sediment or damage, those things. Um, but what we did as a firm as you know, we're engineers, we, you know, do it topside. So we open up a manhole, we have a like a GoPro camera on a pole and, and we look at generally what what we see, we're looking for sediment in areas that we did notice, like debris or sediment, uh, we discuss those with the operations staff to see what was being done, so that we could capture that in the cost. You know, so and, and, and was that work um, systematic? sampling or just hey we're gonna open this one see what it looks like no we really focus on the areas of known issues so uh we first you know we had a kickoff meeting and we wrote down all the locations where maintenance staff is constantly uh providing services cleaning pipes fixing things and then based on our analysis we also looked at areas that uh maybe seemed suspect or just didn't make sense in our hydraulic modeling. So we'd go out and, you know, is that really a 36 inch pipe? Does it really connect here? Those type of things. So we, we feel verified. So there's no condition assessment. There's no report. There's no um, system wide assessment of the condition. Broadly speaking, it could be falling apart, but there's no flooding yet, or it could be in fantastic shape. And there's a little bit of flooding in specific locations, but we just don't have 
your firm doesn't have an opinion on that part. We, we did not study that. It, the timeline really didn't allow that. So There's no blame. I'm just trying to understand yeah. what's but in, what's out. The one thing I will add is that what we've seen of, on most cities around the Bay Area is that the um, uh, concrete pipe usually holds up very well, uh, you know, from stormwater. And that where we see issues is with corrugated metal pipe because it tends to rust and rot. And so there's not a whole lot of corrugated metal pipe within San Leandro, which is a good thing. Uh, the one thing we do see is on the, as the closer we get to the bay, as the slopes flatten out, we do see more sedimentation uh, that would need to be removed. And, and we've seen that. In fact, there's a picture at one of the outfalls, I think, in my report. Yeah, I've, I've seen it before. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's perfect. Right. Um, so I've got two final questions. Um, did we do any type of, I'll just call it uh, identification of locations where we might be missing rain uh, inlets or catch basins, i.e. Uh, we have flooding, not because there's not a basin, but because not because there's sediment, but there's literally no opening to drop the water. Yes, um, that was discussed with city staff and uh, areas that are, we'll say, lacking a, a formal drainage system were discussed. And um, that is, you know, in the future, a part of probably the projects that get built is extending the system uh, to those underserved areas. Is that part of the financial assessment? Uh, gosh, um, I believe so, but uh, maybe Cynthia can remember yeah. all those so, Cynthia, pipes. Do you, do you happen to remember for areas that I'll just say are underserved by stormwater drainage, either lack of an inlet or insufficient number of, I think the term is catch basin, sorry, um, is there any sort of work that's been done or financing financial analysis uh, to, to fix that as part of this effort? Not to my under, not to my understanding, but it would probably be something that would come to light more as we uh, stepped up our maintenance and management of the system and could be included as a medium or low priority project in the future. I do know that there is a specific location uh, in Councilmember Bowen's district that uh, does tend to flood and allegedly there's stormwater uh, catch basins missing and there might not be a storm drain pipe. And then my last question, um, the map on page nine, I don't know if you can put that up or not. It just, it's showed the multicolors, I think high priority areas. One was an orange one in the bottom middle of the city, which I think is Farnsworth. So you see that W in the bottom that's orange? Yes, yes. Uh, I think that's Farnsworth, but I'm not, Positive, that's Farnsworth going to Manor. I guess I would just look to other council members or maybe even uh, Director Marquesis or Ms. Battenberg. Just, I don't know, is that really a flood area along Farnsworth there? I'm not, I'm not familiar with that, but I'm definitely not an expert on all the flooding in each part. Slide 11 details the high priority projects and their location. Do we know, is that because of Letting, or is there just you know we're we're missing drain or does does anybody know? So, Again, I'm just not familiar with flooding right there, so that's why I'm asking. Right. So, 
what that is is an area that we've identified where the system does not have a 10-year level of capacity. Um, and it doesn't, when you see the pipes, it doesn't necessarily mean that's the area that it's helping because sometimes if you, as you upsize pipes, it puts more water, forces more water downstream. So you kind of have to take it to the, to the end. And so on a system like that, it looks very large. And that may be because it, it's a far distance downstream to get to a, a, a portion of the system that has capacity, if that makes sense. Um, right. Thank you. So if, but that, or, or if I could just clarify, maybe, maybe it could be that flooding is happening on the highway and that the water is not getting through that portion of the system as it leaves Caltrans. Possibly. Um, in our report, there are really good figures showing where the flooding is occurring. So that is not in our presentation, but in the report, there is, uh, it's kind of like, it looks like a bunch of uh, dots, yeah. red and same color scheme. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So council member, sign back to you. I was just going to add that Justin Maynard from Schaffen Wheeler is here and he uh, might be able to answer that specific question. I don't want to put him on the spot, but if I think that's could. okay, we'll, we'll come back to that. Okay. It's, it's not that urgent. So Councilmember Simon, back to you. Okay. Since this is the question period, can you remind me, Mayor, is there a comment section as well, or do we wait for the comment part? So we'll come back for comments and just, come back for okay. I do want to hear from our public. Okay. Formulate our comments. Okay. So for questions, my concern is making sure we have enough money to take care of the city. And as we already heard, we waited 30 years to get here. CPI, well, I'll comment on that later, but that one slide, I forgot the number. And it would be helpful for the future to number the slides too, because the slides don't have any numbers on them physically. But why are we not going for the medium to low priority projects when if we don't do anything, they're going to become high priority projects and we're not funding for them? That's a decision that the council uh, can make. Uh, it, uh, the Prop 218 process uh, does require that 50% plus one of the returned votes are in favor and that threshold can sometimes be challenging to you have to get people to vote yes, and people are generally more inclined to vote them on an item. Okay, I'll comment in, on that during the comment period. Thank you. And um, some other questions are kind of higher level questions here. The sea level rise, and you mentioned that it's accounted for, except for at the bay. Sounds like it's not accounted for. Could you clarify that a bit? Sure, and I, I think I didn't explain that very well. So our, our master plan focuses on the pipe infrastructure and, and urban stormwater runoff, that type of flooding. So when you get to the bay, the bay tide is your, sort of your control. That's your downstream condition. So we looked at rising sea levels impact on pipe network and to make sure that pipes could discharge to the bay at now and in the future. Uh, we did not look at what it would cost to protect the, call it the shoreline of, 
of San Leandro from inundation directly from the bay, bay tides. So not, we didn't estimate a shoreline protection. That wasn't the goal. This is really the stormwater infrastructure uh, portion of that. Okay, because one issue that we've run into the past few storms is Estadillo Channel, which runs through the manor, that flood control channel backs up. The tide gates, I understand, are not working from flood control, and I'm not sure when they will work. But the tide backs up through the channel, which impacts the ability of water to flow down the flow control channel and causes flooding in the manor or maybe a potential cause of it. Are you taking into an, into an account that rising tide situation during storms and that impacting the amount of storm flow able to come out of the city? Yes. So our analysis does use uh, uh, higher tides. So we look at mean high, high water that would be coincident with that storm. And then also adding sea level rise on top of that. Okay, and you're assuming all the flood control devices work, Alameda County flood control, flap gates and things work? We are. Okay. Although yeah. the county does have projects and they are studying the channels and the gates, so. Yeah, my understanding is they've come to, to council, but they don't have the money to do much of the improvements. That's the dilemma. Which is, the, which is correct. As of right now, so... Just again, I just I always like to, to make sure we're all on the same page. As of right now, there is no repair planned on the gates. As of right now, the water does flow back into that channel during the high tide. I think Councilmember and I observed it personally. And I think trying to understand the implications for the upstream build, fix, expansion, whatever the case may be, I think it's important because if it's contingent on the county fixing, if the county doesn't fix for 20 years, then that can have an impact on how we think about what we need. Right. And, and that's, I alluded to sort of an alternatives analysis and that, that would fall under that is, you know, what assumptions uh, could be made about the county infrastructure and, and, and such. So. Okay. And it sounds like you've done work throughout the Bay Area and other cities and other areas run into similar situations as us. My question is, on the other side of the Bay, in San Mateo County, I understand there's a project called One Shoreline that combines cities with counties in protecting from flooding, shoreline-related flooding, which may have some impact to us here on our side. Have you had any relation or involvement in that one shoreline project? And do you see any benefit to us here on our side of the bay implementing or doing some type of coordinated effort like that? So I'll, I'll have to disclose that we are the engineers for one shoreline for that project from the airport to Burlingame. And I absolutely do see that a benefit of a project like that for San Leandro. Good. I'll comment on that later too. The the Williams Neptune, can you describe what type of prepare, repairs you're proposing there? Certainly, yeah. So the, because that's the largest uh, 
group of projects. Uh, so what that does is uh, it provides larger pipes out and a new outfall out to uh, the bay along Williams. And so that's the first phase of the project. And then the second is add a, an additional pipe along Aurora. And that would also collect additional runoff. So it provides more storage, more conveyance, and it will also benefit the Neptune area because what's happening there is water's backing up and, and inundating Neptune Drive. And so if the water from Aurora and up there, it has a mechanism to get out to the bay and not kind of uh, surcharge onto Neptune Drive, it'll benefit that whole region. And that's kind of what our hydraulic modeling and what Justin has spent months looking at is, you know, but again, there are alternatives to that. There may be different alignments. Uh, you know, there's, what we're trying to do is try to do this using gravity and avoid pump stations. Uh, at some point, probably a pump station may be needed as sea level rises and things, but we want to avoid that for as long as possible because those are very costly and require a lot of maintenance. Okay. Is this part of this, um, there was an assessment district that was being proposed in this area. Is this part of this or is this separate? I don't, I don't know anything about the assessment district. Maybe uh, Cynthia or Rick do. Okay. Maybe I'm, not, not a, I'm not aware. I mean, I know that there was an Eden Road assessment district, but that was for road projects. That was that was a long time ago. So. Councilmember Simon, if you don't mind, why don't we uh, revisit that question? As I think it's beyond the scope of what, what they have done. Okay. And my, my last question is, these improvements at Neptune Drive, since they are so close to the bay, if there was a larger sea level rise protection, project, do you see your work needing to be redone? Or is there been some thought into sea level rise with your project? So uh, our projects work with rising sea level. Um, but uh, so if there was maybe, let's say, like a, a one shoreline type project, it should still work with that. You yeah, mean, and I, like a I, physical seawall. Is that what you're referring to? Right, right. If it was something like a seawall, the, the pipe would still penetrate and go into the bay, and it would still be controlled by the levels in the bay itself. Yeah, and I think I can I can add a little bit to that. Um, the way that the projects are set up in that area, they are broken down in, in incremental pieces with varying priority. And Dan hit it right on the nose earlier. We attempted to deal with what we could by gravity first with the very high and high priority projects. The medium and low priority projects are the ones where the cost is built into the storm drain master plan somewhere to adapt to whatever solution comes about to to protect from sea level rise and protect from, from coastal flooding. Um, it's a matter of where do those projects go exactly? Um, and where does that pump station end up? The capacity of that pump station that is eventually proposed in that area, because eventually it will likely be needed, um, shouldn't change regardless of what coastal measures are implemented. Uh, so in theory, those projects can be sort of 
picked from out of the master plan and constructed at different points in time. And that pump station, again, the capacity has been accounted for. Um, the canal that you referred to earlier is another area where we've sort of traced out a large area of existing gravity systems that may need a pump station in the future. Um, and I believe we, we state a capacity for that as well, but, um, that is the, that's more impacted by the higher sea level rise scenario than, than the lower one, which, uh, hits Neptune first. So that's, that's my two cents. Thank you. Is that a, a city pump station or a flood control pump station? That isn't contemplated. Um, could be either one. Okay. Thank you. That's all my questions. At this point in time, we will go to public comment on the item. Do we have any cards? No, no public comment. So we'll close public comment on this item and move to council member comments. So I'll go to you, council member Simon or vice mayor Simon, please. Uh, yes. Very good presentation. Um, consultants and staff are, are well, seem very well versed and have done a lot of detailed work here. So is, this looks like a good study. So thank you for that. My questions, well, my comment is on how much money we're going to be requesting of the public to pay for this. And I am concerned about not asking for CPI because if we had several years of 5 or 6%, which could happen, will be behind again. And my other concern is we are leaving out, I forgot the number, $1.7 million a year or, or something like that for the small to low priority projects, which in my opinion, if you leave small to low unattended, it will become large and it will be a problem eventually. So my, my recommendation would be ask the money ask the public for the money that we really need rather than what we think they might go for because it's not going to solve the problem. Big picture. And I really don't want more problems in the future. And my next comment would be, I, I'm really impressed across the Bay, what they're doing with this one shoreline. And I see us as we're in the same Bay. So it's the same issue. And you know why are we on our side of the bay not coordinating better with our county, the cities, whether it's Alameda, San Leandro, Hayward, all of us together working with the county to solve this problem, which we know exists. It, it, it's, it's real. And um, I'd like to support and see what we can do as a city to help learn what they're doing at One Shoreline, take some information back, and really start to prepare for what is going to happen. And just appreciate the presentation. Thank you. So the the only other comments that I would add on top of council member Simon is that I do think that understanding how this integrates into the assessment that the residents of Neptune Drive and that entire area have considered uh, to potentially impose on themselves in order to achieve the, the flood control benefits and lower their insurance costs, that thinking about that in an integrated way is really important. Um, and then lastly, when you talk about punching that or not taking advantage of, <clears throat> of a bigger pipe and 
still channeling water out to the through the flood control wall. Right now, the the panel, the gate on that wall is also stuck open with sediment. So, you know, just making sure that we don't get 90% of the way there, 99% done, but the darn flap stuck open so tide, tidal water comes in. And that is far more significant than the water that we're catching from upstream would be my assessment as a non-hydrologist. But I see a head nod, so I'm assuming the answer is yes, <laughs> since the bay is much bigger. And <laughs> um, that just, it seems like a, a detail, but I know that early on last year when we were trying to assess who owns which tidal gates, there was some confusion. So if we were to uh, have water exiting at Nep Neptune Drive from the connection to Aurora, how does that work exactly? Is that flood control? Is that the city of San Leandro? Um, and working with the agencies is paramount. Uh, enough on that. And then on the financing, I will say, uh, I've personally thought long and hard about um, how much we try to collect from residents. It's, I think it's an easy story to say that for 30 years, we didn't raise your rates. And then say, and the buying power has fallen exactly in half. So we need to double your rates, homeowners. It is that simple. I'm not being greedy. I'm just asking for what I absolutely have to ask for. So there's a certain amount of appeal in that um, politically and, and getting the votes. I know that a number of county, number of cities have had very close votes, some of them failing. And so I don't I don't want to I don't want to fail out of out of idealism. And so we will continue discussing that on on our end. I can say that those that pay a lot the business community thus far have been very supportive of our efforts to identify the true cost of delivering service. And so I'm very grateful for, I think we've probably met with about half a dozen businesses now. And they've basically said, thank you. Well, they appreciate the transparency of our communications. And so thank you for the work that you guys have done to build out those cost estimates so that we can have those transparent conversations. With that, we will move on to item 3B and talk about Pavement management, our educational series continues. Uh, one last question or comment may I make, Mayor? Certainly. Grant funding, whether state or federal, did we look into that as far as potential funding sources? And um, if not, I really support finding finding um, free money out there. Any input on that? So I will start with Assistant City Manager Engelbart. Deputy City Manager Engelbart. Thank you, Vice. <clears throat> Thank you, Vice Mayor, for your question. Uh, I can certainly confirm that we were, we have absolutely uh, sought out grant or other outside funding opportunities for this. Uh, I think it was a year or two ago. We did receive a one million dollar federal earmark uh, towards trash capture devices. So we were successful in that endeavor. On that front, I, I would look to the Director Marquises, though, to the extent she may be aware of any other. Uh, funding opportunities that which we've looked at in the past. Any any color that you'd like to add at this time? No, not too much. Other than yes, when we look for these um, master plans, it allows us to be more competitive for those grant opportunities, and so that we're we're better equipped from here on. The only other color that I'd add is. First, you lay the foundation with having these plans, ha having a clear mission, 
having the plan, and last but not least, having what's called shovel-ready projects. So I think being able to define a layout, having the engineering in place and say, we're ready to go, we just need the money. And we're putting in 20% if you can give us 80%. And so that's part of the storytelling that we're working on putting together. And so thank you for the work that you're doing in that regard. So that will move to item 3B. Sorry, mate, one other comment related to that. I'll, I'll keep it quick. Go ahead. Just one, one idea to share, this is a comment. Uh, I heard a, pre a presentation from Brown and Caldwell not too long ago that private industry, private corporations are getting involved with public projects to keep them green or to protect the environment. And one example is Pepsi-Cola uh, gave $1.5 million to a wastewater agency in Southern California to help with recycled water or, or some other type of green effort. And it's a sounds like it's a new type of private-public partnerships to help fund projects to support the community. So I just wanted to throw that out there. I just learned about that, and I think it sounded really cool since we have so many corporations in San Leandro that maybe they would be interested in supporting and helping to clean, keep our bay clean, uh, protect our city, and then they could use that you know, as part of their promotion of their company. So I just thought I would share that. Thank you. Thank you. That's very timely when we met with, I won't identify the company, but one of the companies that we met with was specifically focused on metrics and how it is that they can promote um, on their global storytelling, uh, their support of sustainability initiatives. And so I think that comment is quite timely. So now we'll move to our teaching. Good afternoon, Mayor Gonzalez, Vice Mayor Simon, Council Member Azevedo, community staff, and the public. My name is Erwin Cheng. I'm the acting city engineer. This afternoon, we are presenting Pavement 102. This is the second of three series on pavement management. And uh, this afternoon, we have a special guest. Uh, she has over 30 years of experience with Street Saver. And Street Saver is a program developed by MTC that allows the city to perform cost-benefit analyses uh, to improve street conditions. Her name is Margot Yap. She has been training users of this program uh, since 1997 and has personally worked with 200 cities and counties located in the Western United States on payment-related projects. She holds a master's degree in civil engineering focusing on payment design and payment performance. Without further ado, I would like to call on Margot Yap. Thank you, Erwin. Good afternoon. Um, so I have a short and hopefully exciting story for you about your street conditions. Um, I know this is part of a series. So the first thing um, Erwin and Sheila, when I talked with them said, you know, let's give us um, a little background on what is Street Saver. And it's just a program, um, but it's a very efficient program to help city staff manage uh, pavement conditions uh, statewide. And the goal is obviously to get the best streets that you have for the least amount of money available. Um, as Erwin said, it was developed by MTC, and I think you're in good company. All 102 cities and counties in the Bay Area use Street Saver. Um, a lot of other agencies like uh, the Presidio, East Bay Mud, uh, East Bay Regional Park District also use Street Saver to maintain the pavements. 
Um, in California, it's actually used by over 300 cities. So it's the predominant program uh, in the state. So what I like to think of, though, it's that, yeah, it's a program, but it really answers some basic questions. You know, how many miles of streets do you own? Are they private? Are they public? Um, what Are they in good condition or bad condition? What kind of repairs are needed? When? But I think the most important one and the one I'm going to focus on today is it answers the last question on the slide here. How much money do you need to maintain your existing conditions? Or if you want to improve your conditions, how much is that? So I think um, uh, uh, Owen told me that you've already got that primer on the PCI, so I won't spend much time on this. Um, I think just to share again, remind everyone that you know we have a scale from zero to 100, 100 being very good and zero being failed, and that where the average for San Leandro streets right now is at 55. So some of your streets aren't good and some are in poor, um, but generally speaking, the average is in the blue condition, which we consider good or fair. And every one of these little blue colored categories have an associated treatment with it. Um, there are some examples here. Um, slurry seals, for instance, who are in the very good streets. And then if it's very poor or failed, then you might do uh, some cold in place recycling or some reconstruction. Both of those are very environmentally sustainable treatments, uh, which the city um, has, um, has employed in the past. So these are just some examples of uh, treatments. And, and, and like I said, I won't, if you have questions, by the way, I'm happy to answer them about the specifics. But the key takeaway is that as you go down in terms of condition, the repair is going to cost more. And I think this is pretty uh, intuitive. So you'll see on this chart here, for instance, if a street's in good condition, it's a slurry seal about 880, um, all the way down to reconstruction uh, with full debt reclamation, about you know $100 a square yard. So about 10 times more expensive. So the question is, when is the most optimal time to fix your roads? Um, and, and, then, and there's a note here too, of course, there's some new regulations coming on board. These uh, unit prices that I show, I'm sharing with you is as of right now, and they will change with inflation, um, just like in the previous discussion, a previous presentation. So what I'm going to try and do is, you have a bunch of good roads, and I would urge you to keep them good, and so we have what we call preventive maintenance. Um, and for a very uh, minimal cost, you can maintain those roads in the green condition. And the, the benefit of this is that not only is it cheaper, uh, you will your residents will experience a much higher level of service for uh, significantly longer. And the alternative to doing this is, I mean, I'll come back to this slide in a second. The alternative to doing this is to wait till it falls apart and reconstruct it at $100 uh, and then you get a brand new road. Now, the con or the disadvantage of this, of course, is not only is it more expensive, but probably for a period of about 10 years, your residents are going to experience a slowly deteriorating road with lots of potholes. And after last winter and this winter, I'm sure you've seen a progression of potholes on, on most, um, just about anywhere in the Bay Area. So my analogy is this. If you have a car and you, you have two options, I have a, a Toyota Highlander, it's 2006, I've got about 198,000 miles on it and I take good care of it. Every three to 5,000 miles, I get an oil change and it's gonna run hopefully for another 100,000 miles. The other alternative I could have picked is I drive the car off the lot and I don't do anything and I drive it to the ground and then I go buy a new car. Now, when you look at these two choices, intuitively we all know the cost-effective decision 
is to take care of the car and maintain it. Same thing with roads. So um, that's the only takeaway I want to take um, to leave you with on these last uh, three or four slides. You do have good roads, take care of the good roads, but we do need to do something with the roads that I have already failed. So the city staff um, um, ran some scenarios, which I wanted to share with you. The first, there's two pieces of information on this slide. The line is the PCI or the pavement condition index. And the bar chart is the unfunded backlog or deferred maintenance. So currently, um, the city is spending about $4 million a year on paving. And what you can see on that line is that we're, deterior we're showing a deterioration about 55 all the way down to 46 in 10 very short years. You're dropping about a point a year. Now, 46 brings you dangerously now to what we would consider poor and maybe uh, going to verging on, uh, on failed um, categories. The other part that is a little bit more significant is your unfunded backlog. It's a little bit over $120 million right now, um, which is a lot of money. There's a lot of repairs that you need. But in 10 years, it's going to almost double to $200 million. And that's a really big hole to dig out of. So those are kind of the red flags that I look for when I look at this kind of data. So we ran um, 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 some additional scenarios. We said, well, okay, how much would it take to keep the status quo, kind of maintain things as um, at the uh, PCF of about 55. And you can see what we need is about 9.6 million. So more than double um, what the existing funding levels are. It would also tend to stabilize your um, unfunded backlog between 120, 150 million. It's going to fluctuate a little bit, but it'll be in that, in that region. The next question was, well, let's try to shoot for an ambitious goal. How about we try to improve it to 60? Um, an MTC does urge all of the its member agencies to always look at the scenario that says increase your PCI by about five points. That's a pretty modest goal for most. Um, but what would it take for San Leandro? And you can see that if we want to improve it to 60 in the it'll take in the first five years, it'll require $13 million. And now we're talking about three times um, what your existing uh, budget is. But once you get to that level, you can drop it down to about $9 million a year and maintain it at 60. Finally, the last scenario we wanted to share with you was, well, let's shoot for an even more ambitious goal, which is let's get to the Alameda County average. This is the average of all counties, cities, and counties, as uh, cities and, and, and the county. Uh, let's shoot for 67. It is a little bit more expensive. Now we're talking $19 million for the first five years. And then to maintain it at 67 is about 10 million. Okay. All of these numbers, by the way, um, have uh, inflation built into it. So I wanted to share, I think, these maps. These are a series of maps that kind of really tell the whole story. I think the first map that you see is current conditions, 2024. All the red and orange streets that you see are the poor and, and, and uh, failed condition. The green and the blues are in good or fair condition. And you can see there's a sprinkling of uh, a lot of uh, blues and yellows and greens, which are in the fair and good uh, uh, condition. But in 2033, in 10 years, at $4 million a year, you're going to see an explosion of red and orange. A lot, not very many green streets at that point. Um, conversely, if we did have the money, we could improve it to 67. You can see now a lot more green streets uh, in the city. So it's kind of a stark contrast. Um, but I think, you know, these pretty much tell you the two directions that the city can um, go. Um, I wanted to share also with you some uh, typical funding sources. Uh, they are probably in the in the world of roads and transportation, 
some 30 types of different funding, all federal, state, local. Um, some of the ones that you see here in bold are the funding sources that the city currently receives. Um, and the majority, of course, is you know Measure BB, uh, the vehicle registration plans, uh, fees, excuse me, and then, of course, the gas tax. So those are significant portions, um, but there are certainly other sources uh, that are available. Uh, so Sheila and Erwin asked me to share, you know, what do other cities do? So I wanted to kind of give us some examples. Oakland, which is your uh, big brother right here, the neighbor. Um, they have pretty bad roads. I live in Oakland and I, I know from personal experience. Um, their PCI, average PCI was probably, I want to say in the high 40s. So a lot worse than San Leandro. This is back in 2016 when we started doing the analyses for them. And what we were trying to do was support uh, the need for some bond funding. So you can see on the slide here, um, about $600 million bond measure was passed in 2016. Uh, and then 2022, another $850 million in bonds. Uh, Orinda, a smaller city, Moraga, both small cities also passed similar uh, tax measures uh, and uh, for different kinds of fees. And then Berkeley is actually did have one and they're contemplating a new one in 2024. So, you know, you're in good company. Every city is looking at alternative ways to get more funding. So really just kind of to wrap up, I think I wanted to just say again, you know, I think your the staff has done a, a humongous job of using a program that is cost-effective to try and manage streets. Um, but at the end of the day, $4 million a year is going to result in some pretty dire consequences. Your condition is going to deteriorate. Your unfunded backlog doubles. And um, uh, when when you spend that money for reconstruction, you can't spread it around very much. So um, stick with preventive maintenance the best you can with the existing funding that you had. But I think at the end of the day, we are we are saying that you probably do need to look at some alternative funding sources, which is very similar to the previous presentation. I hate to follow a presentation like that. <laughs> anyway, um, that's pretty much all I have. Any questions? Thank you so much. And you're preaching to the choir. Okay, good. We talked about this starting a year ago, and we made infrastructure one of our top three priorities. And so you're just reinforcing what we already know, but it's very useful to get in a very concise way. At this point in time, I will go to council member questions first. We'll go to public comments, and then we will uh, come back for any final council member comments. Uh, I've got yes, no. Can't tell if you're punching in. Thank you for your presentation. Yeah, roads are real important here in Salient. <clears throat> we yeah. So um, I've asked before at other means, but have we looked into different material for our roads to sustain them longer? Because I know when we have a pothole in San Leandro and it gets fixed, the storm comes, the same pothole over and over. So taxpayers are getting tired of paying for the same pothole over and over. There are definitely um, best management practices uh, to dealing with potholes. The unfortunate thing about trying to fix a pothole in the winter is you can't do a permanent fix. You need to come back in the summer when it's not raining and do a permanent fix. And the, the usual problem with the summer is that you're so busy, city crews, contractors are so busy really doing capital projects, overlays, that sometimes you don't go back and fix that pothole. Um, but trying to fix a pothole in the winter is, it is a fact of life. They are going, they are temporary repairs at best. Okay. Have you seen in other cities or other states where the, the, the material that they use lasts longer than... California? Or yes, there are certainly many kinds of paving materials. Um, using rubber tires, recycled rubber in um, your pavements is one. 
Um, I think San Leandro actually had a project with Crumb Rubber many years ago, and they um, last a lot longer. Um, concrete is also another material that you can use, but concrete is pretty expensive. It's twice the amount of asphalt, yeah. but they will last longer. So it's the first cost that you kind of have to suck up and just do it. Yeah. And then you get the benefits of it in the long term. I've looked into it a little bit. Some states like in Utah, they actually have roads that have carry the internet in it and everything. They're kind of like tiles, but they, it's really expensive though. But Those are all expensive. Yes. Yes. Okay. That's all. Thank you. Vice Mayor Simon. Yeah, my, my question is one of them follows off of Council Member Azevedo, and that is the question on the cost of the materials that we're proposing. And I understand concrete's more expensive up front, or some other materials are more expensive up front, but they may be cheaper in the long run. Has a life cycle cost analysis been done using different materials to decide? In fact, what is the cheapest price long-term, not just what's cheapest up front? Multiple times by universities, by Caltrans, by local agencies, by consultants. Yes. Um, and, and they all are unique because it depends on local practices and local contractors and local suppliers. Uh, but certainly, yes. So what's the result for our area? What's the lowest life cycle cost material? Depending on where you are, uh, for in 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 the in the Bay Area, um, asphalt tends to be on the high side, um, but concrete is also very expensive because the co competition for concrete is buildings, and so if you're in a boom period, um, as we were a few years ago, the 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 prices for roads was grew exponentially. So. I can't give you a simple answer that says it's always asphalt or it's always concrete. It really kind of depends on the economy. Um, when gas prices are high, asphalt's expensive too. And then you might say, well, concrete might be cheaper. So it, it kind of depends. Um, I hate to say this, but almost from year to year, it can change. Okay. Have we built roads in San Leandro using concrete in the near past 10 years or so? Um, no, we we haven't. There uh, is is a road on Washington that was built in 1926 in concrete, and uh, having concrete streets also posed uh, some issues on on uh, repairing underground utilities as it is becomes harder to cut into concrete and to re repair it. Are those our utilities or other agencies' utilities? It'll be for both our utilities and uh, other utilities. And what are our utilities? That would be, uh, it could be stormwater, a storm drain, or sewer, sewer system. Okay, if it's other agencies, underground utilities, do our agreements with those utilities require them to repair whatever the pavement is, whether it's concrete or asphalt, back to its original condition. Yes, that's correct. Okay, good. And it was interesting to hear about focusing on low priority or less damaged streets here, which I agree with. I, I agree with that concept. However, in the previous presentation, which is kind of citywide, 
comment or question here. In the storm drain, we seem to be focusing on the worst projects. And we weren't funding the lower priority that was taken out, the medium to low priority. So I'm kind of curious from a city perspective, why are we have different priorities for storm drains versus streets? I will start that with uh, Mr. Ching and then we can go to Marquesas or actually out of courtesy, I should start with Marquesas and let you pass it. Thank you, Vice Mayor Simon. Um, great question. And just, you know, just out of the top of my head, I'm, I'm thinking that the, the two systems are slightly different and that our roadway systems are much more exposed to a lot more um, elements um, and the demands and the pressures and deterioration um, on our roadway um, versus our storm drain system. The threats to both systems are quite different. In Pavement 101, we talked about, you know, the many trucks that use our roadways, um, the sea level rise um, versus our storm drain system are underground, um, protected under sidewalk roadways. Um, Erwin, do you want to yeah, add anything? I, if I can just add something to this. With roads, there is a very distinctive performance, a prediction of what the future performance is, and it's shown on this chart right here. If your roads are in good condition, it's a very slow deterioration. But it what hits chart, What chart are you showing? What chart are you showing? Um, oh, it's not showing up on the... I'm sorry. Um, I don't know what... See what... Let's see if I can find a number here. It's chart number one, slide number five. That one, yes, thank you. So this is uh, what we call an S-shaped curve, and it shows the deterioration of the pavement. So it's kind of flat in the beginning. So when your road is in good condition, um, it, it has a very slow deterioration. But once it hits that blue category, it's like it's falling off a cliff, and it drops very rapidly in really in a matter of five years or less. So you need to catch that road, as it were, you know, while it's still in the flat part of the curve and not wait till it falls um, down the cliff because it's going to be so much more expensive. Storm drains do not have this uh, a deterioration curve. It's a little bit more linear. Okay, thank you. And let's see, industry. We have a lot of industry in San Leandro, a lot of big trucks, a lot of heavy equipment, oversized loads, garbage trucks, all kinds of heavy things that damage roads, buses, you name it. Have we considered applying a fee or somehow charging the owners of these trucks that are causing damage to the road as opposed to residents with very light cars? Let me answer that. Go ahead, Director Marquesas. Vice Mayor Simon, great point. And actually, I think we may have a slide on this. Do we have that, Margo? Not if we could share slide, that um, slide. Good, last slide. That one. Thank you. So the impact fees. So these are um, thanks to Margo and the, and being aware of what other or neighboring cities are looking at for alternative funding measures. This is something we're definitely going to be looking into, which is, um, for example, the waste vehicle impact fees. Okay, so waste vehicles, is that just garbage? Or would you also include big corporations with trucks other than garbage? 
I think we can look into those two um, right now. Maybe a good opportunity as we're looking at um, our negotiations with our uh, waste services. Okay, and then truck routes. I understand we have a lot more truck routes in our city than, say, our our neighbor Hayward has more focused truck routes. Have we considered a balance between allowing lots of truck routes, which is damaging our roads more, to restricting truck routes so we're keeping our roads in better condition. Have we done any thought or discussion on that? We have not um, conducted a recent truck study. I believe the last truck study for the city was in the 90s. But it's, that's definitely something we can look into if it's in the interest of the council. Um, and it is a balance between providing services to our businesses that rely on those truck routes um, and as well as, yeah, our residents. Okay. And my last question is, you showed a slide for Arenda and Moraga. I'm curious what their PCIs are. Um, Moraga, Arenda, uh, I think, is in the low 80s or high 70s. Um, Moraga is probably in the high 70s right now, but they all started in the 40s. So when you say start in the 40s, what do, you, what do you mean? When they started uh, before, prior to uh, passing the sales tax and the bond measures, they were in the 40s. And then once they got the money, um, they were able to accelerate the paving program. And in the case of Moraga, I think it's been seven, eight years that uh, the first three years was when they spent the bulk of their bond measure. Uh, Orinda, I think, was over a period of maybe five years, uh, somewhere in that range. Okay, so they, they front-loaded their yes. projects, similar to one of the concepts you presented. Okay, yeah, I, I would, yeah, I'll have a comment on that later. Thank you. Good presentation. Is that it, Council Member? Or Vice Mayor? Yes, thank you. Okay, so at this time, I've got a couple of questions myself. Um, we've talked about trucks and buses. I'm particularly curious about uh, cities like Oakland or others that have significant bus routes. Um, based on the analysis that I've done on weight, mm -hmm. a bus does probably nearly as much damage as a truck does. Oh, yes. Okay, so given the confirmation from MTC, <laughs> we know that we've got buses running on non-truck routes. What kind of deterioration, acceleration is that doing to our non-truck route streets? Is it taking a 20-year road and making it a five-year road or a 10-year road? Or It probably depends on where you start on that curve. I, I do understand that, but just kind of Help me think about that. If you have a road that was designed for 20 years, okay, so I'm going to make a caveat and say it all depends. That's what I'm, I'm a consultant. I always say it depends. Depends on how, how thick your road is and how well built it was and how well designed it was. It depends on how many um, times the buses come through, whether it's twice a day or 20 times a day. So there are all these ifs. Um, but we did, um, but I can tell you unqualified, yes, buses will have a greater impact on your roads than uh, cars, particularly if you have a road that was not intended to be a bus route, but as the transit system expands, 
uh, and now becomes a bus route, yes, you will see accelerated damage. It could be five years, it could be 10 years. Uh, it really much depends on the actual route itself. We're doing a, um, a study for Santa Barbara County right now, and we're looking at the impact of bus routes on the county roads, and it's definitely showing a significant um, um, deterioration. We're also looking at construction vehicles or heavy vehicles, and we're also looking at um, well, garbage recycling, organics uh, vehicles. All of those have impacts uh, on the pavement, and it all depends on were the roads designed for that in the first place? And if the answer is no, yes, you will see accelerated damage. We've also, at this literally came from Bachman this morning, one of the things that we've been talking about is the weight associated with electric vehicles. Mm -hmm. um, does it really matter? And obviously they're heavier because of the batteries, but mm -hmm. is, it, is it within that tolerance, so yes, they're heavier, but it doesn't matter? Or are you seeing an impact from the heavier weight of electric vehicles? So if you're talking about a passenger car, the impact is negligible. Yes, it is heavier, but it's really negligible. But if you're talking about buses now that are hybrid or that have uh, electric buses or trucks that are going to be, um, because there's a lot of discussion about electrifying, uh, electrification of that uh, freight uh, fleet, Yes, you will see additional impacts. Okay. And even you know, actually your garbage trucks, um, many times, you know, to be efficient, uh, what they'll do is they'll load up the garbage trucks as much as they can. Well, it actually exceeds legal load limits in many cases, but they don't go on the highway, so they don't have to go to the way station. So it's kind of hard to, you know, figure out which one is. But they're and they're on residential roads, which are not designed for those kind of loads. Okay. Um one of the things that we've struggled with, we've had multiple discussions about, is this notion that the, what's it called, Street Saver? Street mm -hmm. Saver program seems to emphasize um, efficiency. Cost efficiency, yeah. Cost efficiency. However, when you have 44% of your roads in poor or failed condition, mm -hmm in neighborhoods. I'm going to focus on neighborhood roads because that's goes in front of people's homes and that's what they see every day. Right. Um, what, what do you recommend? Because I think that efficiency would say we don't spend money there, but in terms of people's trust in their government and are you fixing problems? Um, I struggle with just being efficient. Yes, and, and um, there are multiple ways to address this. I'll give you the case of Orinda maybe as a good example. Orinda's um, arterials and collectors were actually in generally good condition because that's where federal money goes. They're, they, they're eligible for federal funds to begin with. It was the neighborhood streets that were starting to fall apart. So when they passed the, um, uh, the sales tax measure um, uh, and, and bonded against it, what they told the voters was, this money would only be used on residential roads. And they were very specific in the, in the language. Roads with a PC of less than 50 and residential roads. And so it was a way to get support from the public and the, the voters that, yes, they will see this. So that new tranche of revenue went to local roads. But at the same time, what they did was they continued using the continuing maintenance of effort and looking at federal and other funds, grants, and so forth, 
going to arterials and collectors in order to maintain them as well. So you had a two two prong process to try and do that. That's one way. Uh, another way is um, I was in Redondo Beach. I had the same question from uh, from the mayor, um, and and they and what she said was she said, "How about we do this? I know that we have to be cost effective in how we allocate funding. How about we say eighty percent of it of whatever the budget was for the year." will use the program to help us decide the most cost-effective streets. But we also do know we have bad streets in town. We have calls from residents. We do need to be responsive to those calls. And they said to Public Works, every council member gets share a 10%, 15% of the total budget, and those streets are selected at the council member's discretion. So again, you have what I would say, a maybe a suboptimal approach from an engineering point of view, but the politically acceptable solution to make sure that residents do get, if they have the worst streets in town, they don't want to know that they have the worst streets in town. So those are a couple of examples of, of trying to do it. Um, Oakland actually does something quite in interesting too. So they uh, work with um, uh, East Bay Mud and they actually leverage about 10% of their budget with utility projects. And so there's, if you had a road that uh, yeah, East Bay Mud is going to come and trench and replace a long Tunu trench, uh, East Bay Mart will pay maybe half of it and the city will pay the other half. And then at the end of the project, those residents get a brand new street. So you can leverage um, uh, city's money with another source. So that's that's exciting as a possibility. I know pr some of the discussions that I've had over the years with East Bay Mud mm -hmm. wouldn't have brought me that perspective. So if we can achieve that perspective mm -hmm. uh, as a realized outcome, that would be a good thing. And so I would encourage our staff to find ways to uh, to pursue this lived experience. Well, Oakland also has a utility cut ordinance that pretty much dictates what YSPEMA must do to restore the cut after they do it. So in many ways, doing a cost sharing and paving it uh, overall may be the most effective, cost effective measure for both entities. So thank you for that. Sure. Um, that probably covers things that uh, comprise questions. So at this point in time, I'm gonna to go to public comment on this item. Do we have any public comment? Uh, Vice Mayor, please. It's not public comment, this is Vice Mayor's uh, questions. Vice Mayor, you're muted. Yeah, Oakland's utility cut ordinance. How does San Leandro's compare? I don't know. Well, I didn't know. Don't know if you have a utility cut ordinance. So I don't know if we are prepared to make that assessment live. But if you are, have at it. The city of San Leandro doesn't have a utility cut ordinance. Well, that was easy. Thank okay. you. Okay. Anything else there before I go to public comment? Yes. Yes. The bad streets and back to that curve that shows the most efficient way to take care of streets. And it's the good ones because the curve just starts diving off. But I heard the, the concepts of trying to help the bad failed poor or failed streets, but it sounds like you're throwing a, a little bit at it, just a little bit of money at these bad streets. But what is the, what is the actual solution to repairing the streets that have already failed? And we have one in our, my district, actually not my district, near my district called Wiley Street, where 
a resident brought in a Ziploc bag of pavement at a council meeting and said, this is her street, which was very uh, illustrative. So my question is, what do you do with these failed streets? I don't mean to be flippant, but when you have a lot of bad streets, you have to look at alternative revenue sources. I don't think the technology is such that we can recycle them in place. And there are cost savings of 20 to 30% over conventional methods. Um, and they're also environmentally sustainable. And we can certainly do that. But if you have 100 streets and you can only afford to do 10 of them a year, you still have 90 that you have to figure out a way to get the money um, to fix them. I, I will say, though, that if we were to put every single penny of San Leandro's budget into the worst streets right now, I guarantee you in 10 years, you're going to be worse off. Your shortfall will be bigger. And I have done this analysis for other cities and for other counties. Uh, and I have seen the results 10 years later. And I've been in the business 30 years. So um, I've kind of seen that history, that evolution, as it were. So I'm sorry to jump in there, but I just want to be clear. You said every penny of San Leandro's budget. $4 million. $4 million. Okay, that's not... Our entire, your entire budget. Yes, I understand. So if we only put $4 million, we will fall behind. You will fall behind. Thank you. And do you, are there any cities that have solved this problem that have taken care of their, their uh, not so bad streets plus taking care of their failed streets? Any cities in America? Yeah, I think Orinda and Moraga are two excellent examples um, where they started out with very bad streets and they found alternative revenue sources and they continue using existing sources, you know, contributions from grants, general fund in order to um, get to the 70s right now. El Cerrito is another good example. Now, these are small cities. So granted, the total dollars weren't as much, um, but it's doable. Um, I would say for large agencies, let me think. Oakland is just in the beginning process, but we've already seen improvements in their condition uh, from the two bond measures that they've had. They're about, I think, year three or year four in the process. Okay. And then when you say Arenda Moraga alternate revenue sources, are you referring to bond measures? It, yes. They had parcels tax or sales tax, and then they bonded against them. Okay. Thank you. Okay. I can't remember if we did public comment, but if we did, we did. Okay. Let's do public comment. Do we have a card? All right. Anthony Tejada, if you can come up. And we'll do three minutes. Okay, thanks, um, Anthony Tejada, District Four Planning Commission, Board of Zoning Adjustments. Uh, that was a lot of great information to take in. Uh, Took some notes as we're going through this learning series here. So um, definitely want to kind of clue, clue in or key in uh, on those uh, key points that were made. Um, first off, the two-prong approach and the political approach, uh, Arinda and Moraga being the examples for the two-prong and Redondo Beach being the example for the political approach. I think those are, those are great um, potential options for the city to pursue and to maybe have a deeper dive discussion on. Uh, you know, the, the former being more so setting a standard or a benchmark, as you described, 50% or 50 uh, PCI and under 
within a neighborhood could be the category that we focus on in terms of those streets receiving some type of form of rehabilitation or reconstruction that's required. Uh, the political approach, I like the idea of having a set aside amount of those funds being a deciding factor amongst the city council within their respective districts to make that determination uh, for what streets receive repairs and when. Um, it did look from the example, the bar chart, uh, the initial, if we were to stay at status quo and keep the current budget and then run its course, it looked as though we were on a crash course somewhere around 2033, where essentially the pavement road condition with the overall deferred maintenance backlog come to a come to a pass and come to a point of just uh, a collision occurring. Um, and that's in the sense of us continuing with the model that's in place right now, which is prioritizing the preventative maintenance. So continuing with more of what we've done versus bringing in an, a more innovative approach such as Moraga, Orinda, Redondo Beach. So if we continue down that path, we're only going to get to this point of being in a, on a collision course. Um, uh, the example of the vehicles, I agree from the perspective of the maintenance aspect of it, uh, but from say an analogy of a criticality approach, I would probably look at it from an emergency room aspect. If a patient was to come in with a jam finger versus coming in with suffering from a heart attack, we would want to prioritize that person that's suffering from a heart attack versus the jam finger. And I think right now that's kind of what's happening with our streets. We're prioritizing streets that have jam fingers, but we're not prioritizing those streets that are on life support and literally about to die. So I think that's something that needs to be reevaluated. Um, the Street Saver app, just questions on that. Was hoping to get more information on how frequently that's updated the information and how that's leveraged by the city to make these decisions. But overall, I think a collaborative approach is the better approach in making these decisions. My street was an example of a street that went through a full reconstruction, probably unnecessarily, and it would have been great to see other streets receive that same service. Thank you. Thank you for your comment. Sounds like we have no more cards. Okay, so with that, I'll close public comment and turn to council members, committee members here for Final thoughts on this item. I can't see the screen. Do we have Councilmember Simon or Vice Mayor Simon? Yes, no. uh, Vice yes. Mayor, why don't you go first, please? Uh, thank you. A great presentation. Lots of good information. Appreciate the public comments as well. Thank you. Lots of good, uh, good input there. The utility ordinance, the Oakland has one a utility cut ordinance, San Leandro does not. I would highly recommend that we as a city look at an ordinance similar such that when utilities come in, that they're required to, to um, do their fair share of repairing that street. So I would like to recommend that and, and hear back at some point what the plan is to do that. I, I really like those examples, as as uh, Anthony Tejada mentioned about uh, looking at Orinda and Moraga, as we heard, as good examples, as well as Redondo Beach. And um, perhaps we as a city could do some more, you know, detailed comparison to those cities where their alternatives have worked and really try to replicate that rather than reinvent the wheel. Um, I know we need an appetite from our public to support that funding. 
However, uh, I get emails regularly about failing streets in people's neighborhoods. Just during this meeting, I'm getting an email about Wicks Avenue and the alligator cracking growing. So it, it's a regular thing. And um, this is similar to the storm drain presentation where I would recommend going in for the money that we need to really solve this problem rather than kick the can down the road. And then 20 years, our counterparts are in the same boat or maybe in 10 years are in the same boat. So I think we have to take a real hard look at what's really needed. And let's, let's set some, you know, set, let's set some um, higher standards in San Leandro than what we're used to and what people expect. Let's see undergrounding Oh, okay. So this is my last comment on the life cycle cost analysis. I appreciate the feedback that the cost varies depending on what the market conditions are on concrete. If there's a lot of construction going on versus asphalt, gas prices, but it seems like we're just always defaulting to asphalt because it sounds like concrete's never done. And there's some periods where there's not much construction activity. So I, I would recommend that we look you know, we fine tune the pencil here or sharpen the pencil and, and look more on really what's more cost effective depending on the current market conditions and not just assume it's always going to be asphalt. Because uh, if concrete is cheap for some reason, no one's buying concrete, then let's buy it. Those are my comments. Thank you. Okay, so the only thing that I would add I guess I'll reinforce this notion of utility cut ordinance. I think that probably goes without saying, particularly if we can lift and shift what they've already done um, and do a better job of cost sharing when people cut into our roads. I, that is something that people have complained to me a lot about, that you know they come in, they dig up the road, and then they, they, they patch a little line, but in the process they tore up the whole road, and then that little line fails after about three years. And so it's, it's not really... Uh, delivering a, a strong uh, return to as-is condition. Uh, winter work. In a world of advanced chemistry, just find it really hard to believe that there aren't winter work solutions. And, and, and I totally get it that when I'm going to the, the cold parts of the country, all the roads are closed in the summer because they're getting repaired. Um, boy, there's got to be some cold some cold work options that are more than, geez, I have to do it again three months later. Um, it's just really, really hard to believe. If it's a matter of cost, that's one thing. But if there really are no solutions, that's just kind of, it's, it's, it's befuddling to me. Now, I know that water is always a problem. The universal solvent is causing problems. Um, so let's, you know, if there's any hope there, there's any ideas, any cleverness, I'd love to hear it. Um, buses, I continue to be concerned about buses going down neighborhood streets, uh, non-truck routes, particularly, I mean, uh, as Councilmember Simon knows, we spent time on Wiley, we visited, we spoke into residents. There are other streets we have buses going down, what I suspect is a collector, what's the name of that street? One that has Washington Manor Middle School, I think that's Fargo, um, where the residents talk about after repairs being done, now their homes shake when the bus goes by. 
And so, you know, I don't know if that goes to the depth of the street, the compaction of what's underneath the street, but if there are roads that, you know, if you have that much vibration that it transmits to the house, I can't imagine that it's not transmitting through the road bed itself and the surface and, and leading to cracking because we know that vibration eventually results in damage. Um, and the last thought is just thank you. I mean, this series is excellent. Your presentation was excellent. I think we get to the real point that we have significantly underinvested in our city for many years. Uh, we have the second worst roads in all of Alameda County, and that's directly the result of underinvestments. We need to care about our city. We own it. Th this is our city, and um, we need to invest in it. And if we don't believe in the city and we want our city to deteriorate, you know, that's, that's certainly not my vision. And I don't think it's the vision of our council. So we are very committed to investing in our city. Uh, we are imploring the residents, we're encouraging the residents, and we'll be speaking with our residents about the importance of investing in our city. We know that there's hope. You've, you've shown us how it can be done. It's not a hopeless situation, but it requires a belief in the city. It requires a belief that we can be better, we expect to be better, we want to be better, and we recognize that we are competing with other cities. And so when a business is considering, when residents or potential residents are considering, do I want to be in a street where the roads are like this, damaging my car, or do I want to be in comparing this city and another city? We want to be one of the better cities so that residents want to come here, businesses want to relocate here. So thank you very much for your presentation, for the ongoing education. I look forward to street pavement and maintenance 103. Uh, Thank you very much. So at this point in time, we're going to move to item number four, committee member comments, if there's any additional comments before we adjourn. I cannot see if Councilmember Simon has his hand raised. He does, okay? Yeah, I just want to say, uh, along with the mayor, nice job. There's really, really good presentations from the consultants and feedback from the staff. A very nice job. Thank you. Okay, so without further ado, it's 5.59 and we are adjourned.